This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello, and welcome to Season 7, Episode 18 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we're joined by Dennis from Continuing Mission. How's it going, Dennis? Hello. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, yeah so you just you. took over Continuing Mission, uh, well, with the last episode? Yes, that's right. The Tommy Craft interview. Excellent, excellent. Cool. So, so how did you get into into Star Trek in the first place? Well, I've always been a Trek fan for pretty much my young childhood. I grew up watching Star Trek in syndication, the original series. I remember I used to uh, run home from school so that I would be home in time to catch Star Trek on Channel 12 on my local station hmm. in Oregon. And I just grew up a big fan. Captain Kirk was a hero of mine growing up. And I, uh, I stayed a fan of Star Trek all through the years. I was a huge fan of the first movie, the motion picture. I loved that film. I remember sitting in the, the cinema just watching that great uh, sequence of the Enterprise in the docking uh, structure there and just loving it. And for me, it was over too soon. I know everybody complains about it being too long, but when it was over, <laughs> I wanted more shots of the Enterprise. But uh, then I went to college and I kind of uh, fell out of Trek fandom and got involved in other things. And uh, only recently did I discover Trek FM and all my fandom just came back like this big wave. And uh, so, awesome. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm big into it now. Excellent, excellent. So, so what what draws you to uh, continuing mission? You know, what's what's uh, what is it that appeals to you about about fan films and whatnot? Well, um, I work in the entertainment business here in Los Angeles. All my life, I've wanted to. I've had a dream about making movies and working in television. And it was only after uh, I think like a second career, I decided I'm going to go back to college. And I'm going to get a graduate degree and learn how to make films. And so I got into USC, the, the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. And I got my um, master's in fine arts in film production there. And uh, today I work in post-production in uh, the television industry here in Los Angeles. So to me, people who want to make fan films, it's very interesting to me. I understand what it's like when uh, I first caught the filmmaking bug and I went out and I got a, uh, an, a high eight camera. That was the, the big mm. cutting edge of, uh, <laughs> of cameras back when I was getting into it. And I made a karate movie with my friends. You know, we, uh, we decided that uh, we wanted to make a karate movie. And because we didn't have a lot of people helping us, we decided that we would ha have our heroes fight ninjas because their faces are covered and we could have the same four guys just die over and over again. So <laughs> that's how we kind of came up with our story idea. And then we built a story around, well, what do we do if we're going to fight ninjas? Let's come up with a good story. So our story was uh, we have uh, two bike messengers have to deliver a package to the ninja headquarters. And it has to be signed by the ninja masters, but the bike messengers hate that because the ninjas make them fight their way in. <laughs> that that was all the <laughs> that was all That's the all plot need. we needed 
<laughs> to, to start shooting a bunch of uh, martial arts uh, fights. So Excellent. we had a lot of fun with that. And, and uh, so I understand that there are plenty of Star Trek fans who bring that same kind of enthusiasm to Star Trek, and they're just having a lot of fun getting, you know, putting on the costumes and building the sets and just being there acting on a Star Trek bridge or a Star Trek uh, set is fantastic fun. And I understand uh, what it's like. And I want, that's what attracted me to continuing mission is I kind of want to bring that kind of enthusiasm to everyone who's interested in Trek. Excellent. Excellent. So yeah, like I went to film school too, and you did it the complete opposite of what most people do. Most people go to film school for their, you know, undergraduate degree and then realize that they can't get a job, freak out and go back to school to study something else that they can make money off of. But you actually made it work. So uh, congrats. You're my hero. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. All right. So, hey, we're going to be talking about uh, a, a indie young, well, at this point in his career, filmmaker uh, today, uh, and that is Justin Lin. Now, as uh, we have uh, mentioned in the past, this is the final arc on commentary Trek stars, and um, when we started this with Gene Roddenberry, we always thought since, you know, we're going to start with the first creator, we're going to end with whoever is in charge of the ship uh, when, when we leave, and that person is Justin Lin. Yes, we know that Brian Fuller is, you know, waiting, but, you know, he's, that's the next generation we're talking about. Anyway, Justin Lin, (laughs) he's the guy. He's the guy who's here right now, and he is directing Star Trek Beyond, the new feature film, which is coming out in July of 2016. So we're going to take a look at um, his filmography. I was going to say all of the movies he directed, but we're actually uh, skipping over his first movie because it's not really accessible unfortunately but this is the first this is the movie that put him on the map this is the first justin lynn movie which well people have actually seen i guess and that is uh, better luck tomorrow um this film came out in 2003 it was made in 2002 it played at festivals and whatnot it got picked up by mtv right and yeah. uh was released in i think april of 2003 so, and and it's 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 quite different from from what we'll see later on in in Justin Lin's career, but at the same time, very Justin Linish in general. So, so John, uh, you want to give kind of a synopsis of this movie? Yeah, uh, a good suburban kid uh, who is a driven and uh, intelligent uh, guy it goes wrong. Fall, you know. Uh, it gets involved with the wrong people. Uh, things go from bad to worse, and then uh, it just uh, you know uh, it, it gets real serious uh, real quickly. And you know he finds himself in situations that he can't quite get out of. And you see sort of the ripple effect of this series of bad decisions that the group has made uh, overtake them over time until the inevitable end, where he doesn't know where the future is going to take him. Yes, uh, it, it's it's an interesting, you know, kind of coming of age story. You know, it's it's like it, I I always kind of think of it like sort of like a high school version of a of a like a Scorsese gangster movie or something like that. You know, which oh, that's is a good call. It's kind sure. of kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition there. Um, but Dennis, you know, you, you, we we asked you what which Justin Lin movie you wanted to do essentially, and this is the one that you picked. <laughs> 
what yeah. was it about Better Luck Tomorrow that, I mean, you've seen it before, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, what, what is it about it that, that you know, kind of draws you to it? Well, the fact that uh, it was his breakout movie and he had to work so hard to get it made kind of attracted me to it at the time. Um, I was just starting off in film school, uh, planning to go to film school and uh, when I watched this movie. And um, it reminded me of another filmmaker. It reminded me, and this may sound strange, but it reminded me of George Lucas. Right? They both kind of came to this place where they set their stories in an environment that they knew, environment mm -hmm. they grew up in. And um, George Lucas with American Graffiti and Justin Lin did Better Luck Tomorrow. Now, um, we know that uh, uh, Justin Lin, he knows what it's like to go to high school as an Asian American kid. He went to high school in Orange County like his characters. Um, and, you know, that uh, helps bring the world of that story to life. Um, like, it shares something else. Like, uh, like George Lucas with American Graffiti, Lynn is setting this story in a world that he knows. The, uh, one of the results of that is that despite his budget of less than half a million dollars, the world that the characters play in seems perfectly real and natural, and that's not easy to do. A lot of films that have a small budget can feel stagey or fake or artificial, but it clearly shows that he, as a grasp, not only as a director, but that he knew his setting well enough that he could bring it to life and make it authentic on a shoestring. Sure. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. true. Yeah, I, I think the the Lucas, uh, drawing the parallel with that is, is pretty interesting. Um, and it makes me think because, uh, Mike, you always talk about doing double features of things. It would be interesting to watch American Graffiti and then Better Luck Tomorrow back to back and sort of get that feel for, you know, what does it say about how, you know, the, you know, because Lucas, of course, presents a very idyllic uh, look back at his youth, you know, with the, the car culture and everything. But is it something where you could almost look at it sociologically as like, what is one film saying about growing up? you know, in small town America and what is the other film saying about growing up in the modern neighborhood and, you know, how people view their future and their way out of everything. Because it's like it, it, the characters in this movie are so there, you know, like the, I, one of the things I like most about the movie is that uh, they address head on um, where Ben has, you know, the voiceover line at one point where he's talking about these bad things that they're doing before things get really, really bad. But he's talking about these sort of criminal things that they're doing. And he's like, you know what? We were, you know, we had the grades, like nobody was going to look at us and we were just doing it because there was nothing else to do. And it, I think that that's a really interesting sort of take on the different mentality uh, between the two movies, regardless of their similarities. I, I, I like that you brought that up, Dennis. Yeah. One thing that you haven't uh, mentioned yet that we haven't mentioned yet is the uh, is that this is an Asian American story. This is a, a modern day st uh, story of Asian American experience in America, specifically Southern California, and it's it's addressing something that wouldn't occur to a lot of us, which is the pressure that these students feel uh, that they're while they're in school. Uh, they feel this terrible pressure to always be perfect and to always do what's expected of them, both as, uh, as 
sons of their families and as members of the Asian American community. You see that with the basketball sequence where he's, uh, he's on the basketball team and then they try to, some activists try to put Ben into this kind of uh, uh, place where he's representing all the Asian American students on the basketball team and he kind of rebels against that and quits the basketball team. So he says, you know, Rightly so, you bring that up. He says, our straight A's were our passports to freedom. As long as he was given his parents straight A's, they pretty much gave him carte blanche to do whatever he wanted with the rest of his time. And the way that he kind of relieved, relieved that pressure to always be perfect was to rebel against it by being the opposite of perfect and kind of getting involved. That was what attracted him initially, the high that he mm-hmm. got from this kind of the petty crimes that they got involved in until pretty soon it started just completely getting away from them and getting worse and worse. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, I mean, it would, you know, going back to that, that sort of George Lucas comparison, I mean, it's interesting in that both of these are really sort of about characters at the same point in their lives, even, you know, like mm. school is ending and now they've got to figure out, you know, having that crisis of what do I do now, you know? And it, yeah, it is kind of interesting how the pressures, while you know similar in some ways, are are different um, in others, and and how they you know manifest themselves in these particular stories is is pretty interesting. That that is that is kind of a cool comparison. Um, I guess kind of another comparison which you could make. I mean, not not just in terms of you know American graffiti, but just in terms of movies in general and the high school movies and that type of thing is. The style, which I think is really, you know, interesting um, and kind of speaks to uh, Justin Lin as a filmmaker. You know, we're getting to see this, you know, right off the bat. You know, Lin is a guy who's known for making big budget movies with cars that fly and jump and, you know, (laughs) all sorts of Vin Diesel all over the place and everything. And, you know, his movies have style to burn. You know, that is definitely true. And I remember when it was first announced that he was doing Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, I hadn't seen Better Luck Tomorrow at that point, but I knew who he was because, you know, I, I, John and I were just talking, you know, off, off mic about um, Roger Ebert's love for this movie. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was a, a huge champion of this film. And, you know, he talked about, you know, this is indie cinema done right, blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, it was definitely something that I was aware of. But you hear things like that and you think, okay, low budget, you know, high school movie, you kind of have this idea in your mind of what this movie is and what it looks like and everything. And then you hear that they, they're getting that guy to do Fast and the Furious 3 and you're like, where is the, I don't see the correlation between <laughs> those two things. Yeah. But you watch this movie and you realize that this is just as stylized as as those movies, just on a different scale. What what, what did you guys think about the the style in in uh, Better Luck Tomorrow? Well, the style definitely serves the storytelling. It has a little bit of a uh, of a twist to it, and it shows it's it's not your it it shows that the characters are kind of outside the mainstream of their uh, the. American, kind of the standard American uh, outlook on things. Uh, it also is, um, it's fun. And it brings a kind of comedic approach. Otherwise, the film would just be a little too heavy and too dark. And 
what I one of the things that I've always loved about this movie is that it carries a pretty serious message in a pretty dark tone and it kind of hides it in this high school comedy. At first, it's like this standard high school comedy where the kind of uh, um, uh, the kid who wants to be popular and he's got a crush on the the cheerleader and the cheerleaders going out with the older guy who's, you know, rides a motorcycle. And, uh, you know, it's got all these hallmarks of these kind of teen comedy that um, under in the hands of a more commercial or less uh, ambitious director would probably just shoot for laughs, you know, mm. uh, shoot for that kind of low hanging fruit of that uh, uh, teen comedy. But instead he's got a, he's got a much, uh, a much more serious message going on there. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think just uh, stylistically, I cannot yet uh, because I'll be watching for the first time as part of this series, his fast and furious uh, contributions to the world of cinema which I just I can't wait to do, but um, so I, jealous of you. It's the it'll be the first time I'll live tweet it. How about that? Um, hey, you know and, you gotta save that for us. I want the exclusive here. You know you better not be telling anyone what you think about those movies. All right, fair enough. Uh, stylistically, what I liked about about his you know his use of of you know the the setups and 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 the shots and everything like that were was the fact that the uh, he was able to to establish the characters in frame in such a way that you felt uh, like I again you know what I, I almost go back to that George Lucas sort of thing because there are a couple of different moments like when they have the party and they're going through all of the different takes and it feels like they had just sort of like an improv session going on and he just said okay and go and do this and okay and now you have a shot of tequila and what's it going to do it has a very sort of documentarian feel to it where it's like you're sitting there observing what's going on but you're also like in it and there are even the more dramatic moments where Ben you know is having a significant look uh, toward whatever's going on or making a mental decision where he he constructs the scene he constructs the the you know the the visuals in such a way that you feel connected like you what I suspect will probably carry through, although I don't know yet, into the Fast and Furious thing is that he is able to convey without the use of dialogue, which I guess would be another way to, you know, uh, uh, draw Lucas comparison there as well, is that the dialogue isn't the only driver for getting inside these characters' heads. And I, th- I think that he does a, a really good job of just establishing things so that even if they're not saying a word, you know what's going on in their head at that moment. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it it's interesting for sure, um, and it is kind of going to be really cool to see these movies in sort of like a, a fast and furious progression um, <laughs> to to see you know how how uh, his style changes as his budget increases or whatever, and I mean going from a little movie about some high school kids to you know. A spaceship full of people flying across the the galaxy, boldly going where no one's gone before. So yeah, it's 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 going to be fun for sure. I mean, we didn't we we usually do this you know earlier in the show, but we haven't asked or I haven't asked like what you guys actually thought about the movie. Are are you a fan? Uh, what what about you, Dennis? 
yeah, I was a big fan of it. I, I love this movie. In fact, I love the way it starts. You know, it starts with that great scene. Uh, the um, I don't know. Are we are we trying to avoid spoilers? Is that uh, the plan? N- nah. Yeah, nah. No. Nah. No. Nah. Okay. <laughs> well, it starts it, it starts with this great scene of these uh, uh, two guys sunning themselves in the backyard, just like two guys would do, and when they have a day off in, here in Southern California, and then a phone's ringing and. They each check their pockets. No, it's not my phone. It's your phone. No, it's not my phone. And they're alone in the backyard, but there's this phone ring. And then they realize, oh, it's in the pocket of the dead body we just buried in the backyard. And now we got to dig it up and get this phone. And that's like the best opening. And then from there, it goes back to show how they got there, you know, and how, how things came to that point. And when I see something like that, I'm, I'm in. You know, uh, it, it, it that grabs me, pulls me in, and then I'm perfectly fine with letting the story kind of unfold at a leisurely pace or take its time because I know it's going to get someplace that's going to interest me. So that's, uh, yeah, I loved it from beginning to end, and I even love the uh, the ending. That kind of, uh, it's a somewhat, and I know a lot of people aren't really happy with ambiguous endings, but I, in this case, I thought it was the, the best way to go. I, I did like it as well. I did not see it when it was released. Um, so this is my first time viewing it. I did enjoy it. I thought it was clever. Um, Dennis, to speak to your point about the opening, I found there was sort of shades of blue velvet about that because, you know, when the guy has the heart attack on his lawn and it zooms in and you see the the beetles scurrying and it's like there's something beneath this exterior that you need to know about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I and I did like it overall. Um, and... I, I it it plays like an origin story uh, to speak to your point about the ending. So I I think that there's enough in it that's relatable yet quirky enough. And quirky is sort of a that, that could be a dismissive word, but in this sense, he isn't afraid to let the story develop. I, I think to speak to the earlier point about a commercial director, this doesn't follow the typical. He's doing small time stuff. There's there feels like a real progression and an escalation as it goes along that feels natural even though it goes to a very bad place like it doesn't feel forced in any way so oh, yeah, yeah I, I really enjoyed it yeah you know I, I hadn't seen this when it first came out either like like I was saying you know I, I had seen the Fast and the Furious movies and um, I think that was pretty much all of the Justin Lin which I had experienced um, up until he was announced as the uh, director of Star Trek Beyond at which point I was like oh my god oh my god and I just <laughs> binge watched all of his movies and you know his all of his television episodes and all that stuff and you know what what I saw in in this movie in particular was like I was saying before, someone who, you know, definitely has a, a firm grasp on on a visual style in particular. I mean, it, it's it's a movie, you know, like, like, you know, you were saying, Dennis, which has a lot more going on in it than what you would typically find in a high school comedy, which it is a comedy at, to start. It, it turns and gets dark, and that, that is rather surprising. But, you know, it definitely does start off in, as, as a rather humorous, you know, movie. And... You know, I'm I'm a sucker for for high school movies in general, just because I, I always feel like high school is sort of like the perfect representation of 
society you know it's like a microcosm mm-hmm. for the the larger whole you know and and i think that you know by putting society by putting like a, a a city's worth of people into like one building or one classroom it allows you to tell stories which are are very big in a, in a very manageable way so i've i'm always i've always been a big fan of high school movies and i think that this one does a really good job of that and you know certainly gets outside of what you would find in the normal you know high school film um, and yeah, I, I do think that that visually speaking, he is top notch. I mean, we see this even from the beginning. I mean, everyone knows now that you know he's he's a visual stylist from you know things like Fast Five and Furious Six and all the rest of it. But you can see it here for sure. And it, you know, I'm, I was watching it, you know, on on my you know I was I got it in HD off of the iTunes, and I was watching it on like this you know, big screen thing. And it looks really freaking good for something which, you know, was basically made for, you know, very little money. And it's, it's, it's very, very impressive. And um, yeah, I I mean, the performances, everything, you know, even, even as a writer, which Lynn's not really known for, you know, he's, it's definitely solid, like across the board. And, you know, yet, not similar to a lot of the other things which we will be seeing in in the coming weeks. He's a very versatile director for sure. So yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of this movie. Definitely, definitely. Okay. Um so uh one one thing that we can talk about is the fact that there is a Star Trek collaborator in this mm-hmm. movie here. Uh Sulu himself, star of the uh of the new Star Trek Excelsior television show coming to you uh, January on CBS All Access. Uh, Please John note Cho. that this is not that this is not a spoiler, uh, but a prediction. Uh, we should we should sidestep everything and say that right now that that you're not getting any special knowledge here. I am not getting any special knowledge, but I have been beating this drum for the past three years and at at this point if it doesn't happen then i'm just going to be like screw it i'm out no more star trek for me (laughs) oh don't say no i'm just kidding i'm kidding if you tell me nicholas meyer is writing anything i'm watching it i don't care if it's star trek or if it's uh you know a reboot of lost in space I would totally. Oh man, don't yeah, even kid. Would. I want to see that. Yeah, I mean that sounds like the most amazing thing ever. But would yes. it keep the movie timeline intact? Or well, anyway, questions for another day. <laughs> Regardless of any of that, yes, John Cho is in this movie. That's a long way of saying John Cho is in this movie. So um, it's it's pretty cool. It's weird. It seems like this happens a lot in, in Justin Lin's career, where uh, not even by design, he ends up making movies with people who he worked with in the past almost coincidentally like later on he our next week we're going to see annapolis which features a couple of uh fast and furious uh, actors who he would later work with in in sequels years down the line that he had nothing to do with the casting on and here is another case of that his very first movie for all practical purposes uh features john cho and now Star Trek Beyond, John Cho. It's pretty cool. I like when things like that happen. It makes me happy. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> what did you guys think of John Cho in this movie? Dennis? Well, Cho's got an interesting role to play in this film. He's 
the not quite villain or he's the not quite antagonist he's kind of the antagonist to ben our main character because he's dating the cheerleader that ben has a crush on and he's at first presented to be kind of a jerk he's seen to be cheating on uh stephanie i believe is a cheerleader's name but then as time goes on in the film he turns out to be a rather sympathetic character and Cho uh, can handle all that quite credibly and does a very good job with his performance, as, of course, fans of his would never have any doubt. Yeah, I, 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 he handles it well, He, you know, and he handles his turn well. There's the the scene that jumps out to me is where he um, he sits down in the in, in the cafe and he's going to light the cigarette and the the waitress comes over. and He's like, you can't smoke in the cafe. And he's like, oh, like he does. He has a just that scene stands out because there's a real sense of, uh, you know, not menace, but like he's able to carry off uh, th- this real weight to his words where, you, you know, you could see why somebody like Ben would be put off by him initially, sure. not just the, the cheerleader. You know, he's dating the cheerleader, but like he feels like he has this sense of power over Ben and he's aware of it. Where it's like, I know what you're thinking right now, and I'm going to mess with you because of it. It's a good scene. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's definitely good. It's kind of crazy when you start going back to, you know, this kind of time period, and especially these types of movies like high school or college, you know, movies. John Cho is always there, you know. He's he's in he's in uh, American Pie. He's in... Um, the, the the Harold and Kumar and everything like that. He's just he just shows mm-hmm. up in random places, you know. And and you're watching movies and you're like, hey, there's John Cho, <laughs> and here he is yet again. And yeah, I mean, he is an extremely good actor. I mean, it's no surprise that he keeps on getting work. And um, I can't wait to see him on uh, CBS All Access next January. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So, okay, there is one more character who, uh, or actor and character, who is um, extremely talented and who we will see again in the coming weeks, and that's um, the character of Han Solo, played by Sung Kang. Now, this is, to me, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I just love, love, love stuff like this. John, you'll have no idea, you know, what what we're talking about here, but the no. character of Han. I mean, let's, let's just get this, you know, right out there. I mean, is he the coolest person ever in the history of people? I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he is, right? I mean, there's that opening shot where he's like, you know, leaning against his car and he's got his cigarette and he like flicks it at them and everything. And the, that, that amazing, you know, you know, track in to, to him. And it's just like, oh my God, this guy is like the epitome of cool, right? And it, it, even though the character himself, you know, you kind of think like, this guy's kind of a jerk, you know? I don't think I would like hanging out with him, but I would hang out with him because look at how cool he is. He really is like the coolest <laughs> guy in the world, right? And to me, and, and and Sung Kang is an amazing actor, you know? And to me, it's it's no surprise that that Justin Lin would want to work with him time and again. And the character is so cool that it's no surprise to me that he would want to bring him back in the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Um, and I, I, I kind of, I love connections like this. I love it when movies which are completely unrelated and not even in terms of 
genre or or subject matter or anything have some sort of common thread which connects them. I love the idea of Better Luck Tomorrow taking place in the Fast and the Furious universe, right? I mean, it's the Fast and the Furious expanded universe, really. The Fast and the Furious cinematic universe. I mean, they keep on talking about wanting to do spinoffs. It's like, here's the first one, right? And I love the idea of it's just like it's a different genre. It's a different type of movie. And this character who worked really well in this story will also work extremely well in a completely different type of story. Um but yeah, I don't know. Well, Dennis, as someone who's seen the Fast and the Furious movies, what what do you think about the inclusion of Han here and how that character is expanded in, in future installments? And no spoilers. No spoilers. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, he's a fantastic actor. You've got that right. And he's really introduced well in Better Luck Tomorrow. I love how they introduce him as the complete polar opposite of Virgil, the kind of goofy <laughs> screw-up. And then everything Virgil is not, that's Han. And he drives uh, uh, that very cool, uh, it looks like a 65 or 66 Mustang, cherry red. Oh, it's just awesome. Just a fantastic car. And uh, that really adds to his cool factor, driving a car like that. Although it probably doesn't run well, like most of those cars that still exist today. But that doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter at all. It could be breaking down by the side of the road, and it doesn't hurt his cool factor at all. Now, um, in fact, that just gives him an excuse to lean on it and look cool like he, you know, <laughs> and we know he's good at that. As far as his character perhaps being um, an expanded universe kind of character, that's kind of a fun idea. I don't know if I'd go that far because I think that the tone of these films, you know, of course, Better Luck Tomorrow is a far more realistic tone. That's what gets, that's why it's got the stakes are 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 as as high for these characters as they are, is because they do live in the real world and are very um, uh, down to earth real world. You put uh, these kind of petty crimes in the movie like Fast and the Furious, where they're stealing a billion dollars every movie, and it's like it, it's like the. Uh, uh, a sneezing, you know, or, or or the equivalent of not bothering to say Gesundheit or I, you know, God bless you after somebody sneezes. But as far as picking an actor, what I loved is that of all the actors he could pick from Tokyo Drift, Justin Lin could pick to bring into the next Fast and Furious that he was going to do. He picked the right one, and it's not the lead actor. <laughs> no. it, it's it's, uh, it's King, and uh, that was the good. That was the smart choice there. Definitely, definitely. John, and any thoughts on the character of Han as you see him now? I'll ask you again in a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, the cool friend that you regret being friends with because his coolness hides a side of his personality that you don't dig. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to speak to your point about high school being a microcosm of the real world, we all encounter that at some point. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, a good actor uh, playing a very intriguing role. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, um, any any final thoughts on, on Better Luck Tomorrow, Dennis? Well, yeah, I did want to... Uh, there's one thing we haven't mentioned, and that's kind of the overall theme uh, of the movie. And, and uh, to me, that is kind of what you get in uh, in today's kind of American culture where 
getting ahead or financial success is your only measure of success in life. You kind of end up with this overachieving, amoral kind of situation. Uh, Ebert compared this to Enron, and I think he's, he, you know, that's a fantastic comparison because, uh, you know, the, doc, the famous documentary about Enron was called The Smartest Guys in the Room. And, and yet they were the most, some of the most corrupt executives in the history of corporate America. And these guys, these kids, they're the smartest kids in their high school. And yet look what happened to them without some kind of moral uh, or ethical guidelines. They ended up on this kind of um, downward spiral of crime and violence, and even though they were straight-A students. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's an important lesson uh, and I love how they sneak that lesson into this kind of high school what looks like a high school comedy where the like what is it you look at or you think about a movie that you mentioned earlier American Pie what's the lesson in American Pie you know what's the moral lesson there and here's a movie that's a high school movie 10 times cooler than American Pie and yet has a much stronger moral lesson in it uh, so that's just my final thought there on on better luck tomorrow yeah yeah for sure yeah for sure yeah, but, absolutely well said and uh, the only thing i could add to that is it's out there for rental so go ahead and, and rent it it's definitely worth watching it really is yeah i i agree i agree i, I think that this is kind of an amazing first film in a sense you know and it, re- it really kind of uh, sets the tone for the rest of of lynn's career as we'll be looking at in the coming months i guess um sort of uh and uh yeah it's 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 kind of great to see what he can do on such a small scale you know and and uh and how effectively he can do it so definitely check it out for sure for sure so dennis uh, where can people find you on the internet well i'm on uh, the babel conference trek fm's uh, facebook group for listeners and they can find me on the network as the host of Continuing Mission, Trek FM's podcast about fan productions of all stripes. And my Twitter handle is at Dennis Castello. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We, we really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you're more than welcome back anytime. Well, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun talking about this film. All right. Well, that was fun talking to Dennis about... Better luck tomorrow, but hey, breaking news here at uh, at the well, the world really. Um, but creator news, big creator news for for Star Trek. Star Trek 2017 has announced, as everyone I'm sure knows, that Nicholas Meyer has been hired as a writer slash consulting producer on the new show. This is huge. And, of course, if we're going to be talking about breaking Nicholas Meyer Star Trek news, which happens like once every, what, 25 years, we've got to bring on John Tenuto. So how's it going, John? Hi, guys. Thanks. Very excited. 
I, I'm I'm very excited too. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what your your reaction was when we saw it. I, we'll get to that. We'll get to what 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 the two of you, how you reacted when you heard this news. But let me start by saying what my reaction to it. I, I saw it because on the Babel conference, Matthew Rushing posted the story from StarTrek.com, and I saw like StarTrek.com, and I saw a picture of Nicholas Meyer, and I saw a Nicholas Meyer Star Trek, and my my initial like just sort of like uh, instinctual response was they got him to come to vegas all right and then i read the headline and it's like writing the new wait wait is it march for april 1st i i, I forget what, what's the date again and i started reading it and i was like oh my god this is the most amazing news ever that was my first reaction my second reaction was what does John Tenuto think about this news? What did he? How? What's his reaction to it? Because, um, yeah, I imagine that it was amazing. <laughs> what was your reaction, John? Well, you know, it's funny. I, um, you know, I, I was speaking with my wife uh, just a short time before then. We were actually preparing. We had a, um, a lecture we were giving uh, for celebrating, you know, sort of remembering the life of Leonard Nimoy the next day, and we were doing our rehearsal of information and just memorizing and double checking and doing all that kind of stuff to prepare for, for Saturday's lecture. So I had the computer opened and, uh, you know, of course, when my browser's open, it goes to the important news sites of star Trek.com. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I, I opened it up and it, but we had, we were really thinking a lot about Leonard Nimoy, uh, you know, the day before the anniversary of his passing. And I had mentioned that, you know, wow, it was, you know, Friday last year, he came home and just a normal day. And then boom, the news hit about Leonard Nimoy. And it was this big, you know, uh, obviously big emotional, horrible, um, day. And, uh, here it is a year, year later, almost to the day, and it's the, it's the Friday, come home from school, and boom. But this time, really great news, you know. So it was, it was. Uh, I had the same reaction you did, you know. I saw his picture, and I, I really, literally, my, my jaw hit the ground. I, I, I you know, uh, the the best description I heard it was, you know, as as if Tolkien had decided to, you know, they had uncovered an, an additional chapter, you know, of the story <laughs> or something that we're going to get to. See this again um i was very very excited about it and uh you know I, I immediately was was uh was happy and you know yelled out to my wife to come and see and and just uh you know wanted to send my congratulations to mr meyer and everything it's just such great news i think for fans every bit of news that's been coming out about the new show has i think just been received really well except you know uh, the initial announcement that it was a sort of a paid thing i think people were thrown for a little bit for that but uh, uh you know i i didn't have a problem with that i'm i'm happy to pay for star trek you know i mean when you think about it really if they do like one of these a week you know it's six dollars a month that's like a dollar fifty per episode of star trek i just spent like seventeen dollars on a ticket to see Batman versus Superman. So you know what? I can drop a dollar fifty for some Nicholas Meyer Star Trek. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and I think you know, in some ways, it's it's I, you know, I I think it's it's all in line with the the way Star Trek has always been. Star Trek has always been, and I think you see that with with uh, Les Moonves had some comments today too about you know Netflix and and Amazon and Hulu all wanting the new show and that's that that CBS could have just sort of sold it to them and walked away and took the check and, and instead they they really wanted to keep it within their world and to keep it 
um, you know, what it is, which is this really great keystone, you know, uh, um, franchise for them. You know, he really, you could tell in in his comments how much he knew the value of Star Trek. And, um, you know, I think that, that they put it on CBS and that they're trying to use that as a way to get people to pay attention more to, to, to all access is a shows a lot of confidence in, in Star Trek and its place. And, uh, you know, the Star Trek's always been the, the, the thing that's been used when there's a new technology, when the, when the, when it was, it was in fact, it was Nicholas Myers, Ratha Khan that really ushered in the home video market of being able to purchase a film and keep it. That was the first film where they tested this lower price point and would people you know, buy a film for, for $29 to, to keep rather than just selling it for a hundred dollars to a video store and then you rent it. And, you know, they, I think the number was they, they had hoped to have 60,000 sales and they doubled that. And that, that really gave confidence to that market that people wanted to do that. You know, when, when uh, laser discs came out and capacity CD capacity discs came out, it was always Star Trek, you know, when, when Blu-ray came out, it was Star Trek. So this is just part of that tradition of, you know, Star Trek being used on the cutting edge. And, you know, that's where TV is all moving anyway. It's all going to be a la carte anyway. And uh, yeah, I feel the same way you do. I, I, I'm, I have no problem, you know, helping, uh, keep the, you know, pay a little bit to, to help, you know, you pay for cable, right? I mean, there is no free TV anymore, except, you know, whatever you can grab. If you have a digital antenna, you pay for it no matter what. So I don't, I, I'm, I'm thrilled. And I think that that's going to add to the quality of it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, what, what about you, uh, John Mills? What, what did you think about the news? Oh, I, I mean, I, I think the same as everybody else. Like I, I saw it on Twitter first, I think, and it was just sort of like I saw it. And I was like, I it, I didn't process it at first. It was sort of like a shocked reaction, like Nicholas Meyer, really. And I went back into it, and it, you know, to speak to um, to John, what what you were saying, like this is Brian Fuller is somebody that the fans will know and embrace, and it's you know the the hardcore fans of us are like, oh wow, it's Brian Fuller, he's coming back to the fold. This is great. But then when you say Nicholas Meyer, you don't associate him with TV production. You associate him with movie production. And so to speak to the value add of just having his name attached to it is, oh, they're getting, you know, this is this is going to be super high quality, uh, you know, entertainment. They really care about this product like that. That's what it spoke to me first. And also the fact that I think that he's, you know, his rep is well earned as being somebody who can create a story that also has tremendous character development and intriguing characters in it. And, you know, also appreciates humor. I mean, all of his contributions to Star Trek have, you know, sort of helped shape that, you know, that classic humor that everybody likes about, you know, the entire series. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it's, it's fantastic news. You know, I, I don't think that there's a single person that sees Nicholas Meyer's name attached to it now and is skeptical at this point. I think everybody understands that CBS really wants this to work well yeah he's sort of the marlon brando you know uh, of writing in the sense of you know the 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 same sort of idea with superman right how do you Mm -hmm. superman the movie i remember i remember seeing the trailer for that and people laughing at the very first trailer um because the imagery was sort of the Batman 1960 show and but then when you started you know you laughed when you saw the name 
then you see all these, you know, you see these actors' names, and you start thinking, well, wait a second, they've got Glenn Ford, and they've got, you know, Marlon Brando, and they've got Gene Hackman, wait a second, and it just elevated the perception of that film to have such high-quality people working on it. So I think, you know, I mean, because Nicholas Meyer really, he does have a long history you know, in, in all different kinds of medium of storytelling, you know, whether it was novels or films or TV movies, and now more recently, a little more recently into episodes. But, you know, he I remember being a kid watching um, The Night That Panicked America, directed by Joseph Sargent, who did, you know, Corbin Might Maneuver, and he did The Man of Man from Uncle that, that Leonard Nimoy and, and uh, William Shatner were in together, and but it was written by, you know, the story was by, uh, and uh, it was the screenplay was co-written by Nicholas Meyer, and you know he did, of course, the day after, and uh, as a director, and he did, you know, did the Odyssey, and you know, I don't think he was that happy with the Odyssey, but I mean, in many way, many times he was, you know, nominated for Emmys for his TV movies. So I think he's a storyteller across all these different mediums, and you know, he's working on crossing lines, and I think he's doing that Medici. Uh, miniseries that's coming out now, and he did Houdini last year, and so it's you know he did a fairy tale theater you know back in 1985 that he directed and wrote you know so mm-hmm. he's he's dabbled in TV and I think you know he may see himself as a storyteller and the medium is isn't necessarily secondary but the medium it can be in any medium and so I think exactly what John said he's going to bring with him all those talents that he has to tell a story. And, uh, and, and I think he understands the necessity of charm that the characters have to have a sense of charm for Star Trek to work. I think that's why the original series and really all the, you know, Voyager whose characters, you know, if, if the characters are charming, um, then, you know, you, the, the science fiction aspect of it falls away and it becomes a human story. And he's really good at that. He understood well, you know, when we all know, you know, when he comes in a Star Trek, it's he's not a Star Trek fan, but he gets the characters because he gets the charm that these characters have in their interactions with each other. And so I'm, you know, I'm very confident that this is going to be a show that isn't a a, a techno babble show, but rather will really be a character oriented show like the original series was. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's true. And I mean, I think one of the things kind of speaking to the medium, you know, and how this, you know, I, I think kind of what you were alluding to is that some people might have the perception that television, or that he might see television as beneath him or whatever. Some people might have that perception of him having that perception of, that's a big stretch. Anyway, I don't think that that's the case because... Um, if you, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, television has completely changed. You know, even since Star Trek was on TV, now television is really the place where, you know, the premier writers go to to tell their stories. You know, so it it does make sense in a lot of ways that he's he's been doing so much television in recent years, in particular. And you know, I mean, I, I guess what what I'm kind of interested in you know, and, and kind of like thinking about the dynamic is Nicholas Meyer has always sort of been the guy. Like whenever he comes into Star Trek, he's the guy, right? And now he's not the guy, he's a guy. You know, Brian Fuller is the guy. You know, he's going to be doing Brian Fuller's, you know, show. And I'm wondering how that's going to impact his his writing or what, what we might see from him 
in in that sense. I have a theory about it, but well, you know, John, what what, what do you think about that? Well, I think you know. I mean, if you you know, you had sent me that link for the article about the interview with him today. Uh, with Nicholas Meyer, and uh, you know, they're asking, you know, what, they were sort of asking, how, what, what role are you going to have? And he was saying, you know, I hope I get to write some episodes. You know, um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I think when people are coming in this early, I mean, who, who knows, right, how far along they are in the development of it. I know Brian Fuller had spoken years ago about wanting to do Star Trek, so he may have, you know. Uh, you know, wanted to come back to Star Trek and create another show. I, at the time of him doing even Pushing Daisies, he was, you know, talking about this. And I think even slightly before then. And, um, you know, he, he has, he, so he may have had an idea sort of germinating and formulating. So I don't know how, how sort of far along they were and, and what Alec Kurtzman's ideas were and all that. But I think when you bring that writing staff in, 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 in its original in the original, right? You get somebody like DC Fontana, who's who writes the really writes the pilot episode with Gene Roddenberry for Next Generation, and they that that writer can have an awful lot of effect in shaping the characters, even if they're not the creator of the of the characters. So I, you know, I think Nicholas Meyer's good at he's sort of he's good at stepping in to already established worlds he he's able to step into the world of sherlock holmes he's able to sh- step into the world of star trek when these things have already been established and um and he's able to kind of find a place and a way of taking that and, and as he says fooling around with them or, or playing around with them and making them interesting and making them different so you know knowing sort of brian fuller's creativity and uh, just you know from you know we got a chance to see him in las vegas last year just the fact that he's a really great guy, you know, just like a nice person um, who who I think is going to be open to all these ideas. I think a lot of people are going to be able to have a kind of an input there, um, you know, in the same way that like maybe Lawrence Kasdan, I thought that that was a good parallel that you were bringing in. Like, so here's the writer, but you've got J.J. Abrams, who's kind of the guy who's shepherding this based on someone else's franchise, right? So Lucas is Roddenberry and J.J. Abrams is Brian Fuller and, and, Lawrence Kasdan as Nicholas Meyer, and you know that worked out pretty good, you know, for Force Awakens. So I'm I'm hopeful that that, that everybody's going to have a voice, and Nicholas Meyer will have a a larger voice because of who he is. I, I think that it's kind of interesting, you know. I mean, we're seeing this a lot, like you know, you mentioned the the Lawrence Kasdan thing, and then there's this, and you know, another one which really kind of uh, stood out to me when I heard this news was the X Files. You know, which obviously just came back, and one of the the really interesting things about that is that the entire writing staff was like, uh, you know, they were legacy people. There, there were people who were who all worked on the original series in a big way, and basically the approach which was taken with that show was really kind of like, we're just going to let you do your thing. You come up with an idea, you write it, you direct it. And you're, we're going to see some some classic X Files in you know the James Wong or the Glenn Morgan vein. You know that's the theory, and you know the the one that really stands out, of course, if you ask me, is the Darren Morgan episode. Darren Morgan being one of the most beloved X Files writers, you know, on of all time, and his episode really does feel the most kind of like self-contained Darren Morganish. 
you know, a- episode of that show. Just, just as the touchstone, the third episode of this recent six ep- episode run, correct? Mulder and Scully meet the were monster. Yes, just wanted to make sure, but you know, not everybody's going to know Morgan's name. There. Yeah, okay, I'm I'm sorry. Yes, so. yes, but my my point with this is that you know I can definitely see a scenario in which Brian Fuller goes to Nicholas Meyer and says, you know what, what do you got? You got a good idea? Just you go off and write that, you know, <laughs> and we'll and we'll put it on the air because it's going to be awesome. And hey, do you want to direct it? <laughs> well, uh, what, what's interesting is there was a, a snippet of an interview with Meyer uh, that I read in, I think it was a Den of Geek article yeah, uh, yeah, earlier today. Yeah, yeah, where, where he, they, he specifically mentioned that he and Fuller had discussed Star Trek VI. Yes. At, in passing, that it was a touchstone for the two of them. Well, I can tell you the exact quote because I have it here saved as a screen cap on my phone. Um, not that I, you know, am obsessed with it or anything, but um, <laughs> Nicholas Meyer said, the one thing I can relate to you is that the undiscovered country, according to Brian, is a real sort of taking off point or touchstone for how I guess he's thinking about the direction of the new show. I don't want to be misquoted and I don't want to misquote him, but he's fond of that film. Let's put it that way. Now, that could mean a million and one things, but to me... The thing that obviously stands out is the thing which I've been talking about for the past, what is it, like three years now? And that's an Excelsior series starring John Cho? I mean, come on. Come on. (laughs) We're so close. We're so close. And oh, by the way, you know, who's the guy who put Sulu on the bridge of the Excelsior? It was Nicholas Meyer. Indeed. John John Tenuto, what, what, what do you think about that idea? Do you think that that is in the realm of possibility? And do you think that I mean, is that something that you'd want to see? Well, I would love to see a um, an Excelsior show because I think you can, um, you know, that you can uh, you can also bring along with that, you know, anything set in in, in sort of that movie uh, universe. Um, although, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the movie universe, and it, and I don't, you know, you're hearing these these lines. Uh, um, in in the peripheral of all this, that it's not it's not directly connected to Star Trek Beyond. Now that doesn't mean it's not set in that universe, uh, but it may not be. But you could still use John Cho as Young Sulu anyway, even if it's Prime Universe, um, right? It's just have him be the actor <laughs> playing your Young George Takei directly. Yeah, if you want to completely confuse everyone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just really, yeah, you know, just really, but I. You know, I uh, the nice thing about that though is that it brings in opportunities. You know, if it's set in the prime universe, I mean, I'm sorry, in the alternate universe, then it does bring in possibilities of, of having some of those characters bleed over at least occasionally um, to that. I, I, you know, if I had to guess, I would imagine that they're gonna gonna go further. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm only guessing, but I would think this kind of concept, this, this, you have heard a couple of times that it's different. So, could different mean in post Voyager Prime Universe? It's that's a possibility. Could it mean twenty fourth or twenty fifth century, twenty sixth century? You know, that's certainly a possibility too. Um, you know, Prime Universe or alternate universe, we don't know. So, I'd I'd hate to hazard a guess, but I think anything's possible if if it's thematic. I mean, if you think of well, what could that mean about Star Trek Six? Um, I was trying to think about that today. 
I, I don't think it's not going to be a starship show. I, I don't think it's going to be. I mean, one of my things was, well, does that mean it's going to be like a Klingon show? You know, is it good about the Klingons or something? And Ooh. I don't think they would do that. Um, you know, I mean, maybe they would, but, uh, you know, I, I think it would likely have some of the trappings of that, so particularly when you look at some of the comments, you know, by, by Brian Fuller and Alec Kurtzman, I think it, it's going to have some of the same trappings and be a starship show and be an, be, be about going out and exploring and, um, seeing what the, what the universe is like, um, you know, I, I would love to see the Excelsior. I don't know, you know, what, what, what the plans are, but it could be that it's has to do with the concept of maybe, maybe it's set in that era, you know, yeah. and maybe it's set in that era of trying to figure out, you know, what it means in a post war period of time. So what, what is Starfleet directly after Star Trek six? That might be an interesting question. Um, you know, when you have this sort of detente between the Klingons and, and the Federation and, and what would that mean? And, you know, when you're, when your enemy now could become your, could become your friend and looks like they're moving that direction. So, I mean, that's certainly a period of time we've, that stories not have not really been told. Um, so, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of possibilities there. I was, I was thinking when you're talking about the re, re, revisiting writers and bringing the behind the scenes people back. And one of the things about Star Trek is, you know, it's never really had an, an auteur that, into, especially in the movie world, that um, where there's been a consistency across many, many films, right? I mean, the most we've ever gotten is the same director directing a movie twice out of the out of the uh, well, the thirteen films that we're going to have. And you, you so you know, you so you get writers here, or you get directors here. Some of them come back, some of them don't. Uh, and there's never been kind of a, a consistency um, across these films and uh and even within the tv shows there was consistency with berman and you know particularly from the next generation era after the passing of gene roddenberry um but you know even gene roddenberry on the original show left after the third season and rick berman didn't really take over until the fourth or fifth season and of next generation and so it, it, i think it's going to be really great if they they keep this team together you know um for a long period of time and we get wouldn't it be interesting for really the first time in star trek tv history to keep uh, a you know a team together um and the same showrunners and that kind of thing through the whole thing i mean even enterprise didn't get the same showrunners through you know and sometimes people would leave to go work on another star trek show and you know um it would be i would think it'd be great to keep them together and the, but but i but thinking about that concept of the, of who is writing and bringing back people you know we, we have an idea in sociology called the 20-year nostalgia cycle that my wife and i talk a lot about we give talks on it you know and it's the the 1970s was a lot about the 1950s right you get happy days laverne and shirley and you know those types of things and, and greece and you know the 80s was a lot about the 60s so you had wonder years and star trek came back and in the 80s and um, you know, you get a lot of, you know, films like uh, Platoon and the Born on the Fourth of July, revisiting the 1960s Vietnam War. And then the 90s are about the 70s with that 70s show and Star Wars comes back. And and we may, we may be in one of those 20-year cycles. I mean, it's been, um, you know, it hasn't been 20 years since Star Trek has been canceled. But, but since there's been a show that really touched a very large audience of people, uh, you know, we are certainly getting close to, to two decades when next generation is off the air. 
And that was really the last big superstar smash TV hit that not to denigrate the S9, which is, you know, in many ways, the, probably one of the best written of the Star Trek shows. But, you know, it, it never touched as many people. It didn't have the audience numbers that Next Generation did, which was beating first run, you know, programming um, in syndication. And, and you know, Enterprise, of course, you know, we, we, you would have two, three, four million people watching an episode, whereas Next Gen, you were getting, you know, 10 million people, 25 million people watching the episode with uh, Leonard Nimoy. Um, so this may be part of that 20-year sort of nostalgia wave, and uh, maybe they'll ride a little, little bit more closer to the Next Gen world. Um, you know, Brian Fuller is kind of a Voyager guy, so I don't know what, you know, where his you know, his, his, his fandom has originated in the original show. So this, I think, can be a very interesting pastiche of maybe all the best of Star Trek with something new added into it. That's my long answer for that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting. He has said that he thinks that DS9 is the best of the, the series. And one of the things that I kind of took away from, you know, Meyer saying that it's going to be different or whatever is that it's I'm guessing it's going to be serialized, you know, that's my, that's my guess. You know what I mean? By what they mean by that, you know, but especially, you know, it's the difference between the, the arcs on TV, right? I mean, and and I, I, you know, I, you know, there are arcs on television shows. Some choose a very long arc and some like the flash or, or, you know, arrow or, or shows like that are do these one season arcs where in essence the show the show really gets rebooted every year, um, which may or may not be the best way to do TV in a way, because I think sometimes the characters suffer because there's very little consistency. The characters are what they need them to be for that season's arc. And, and you know, Deep Space Nine became serialized in a way, but even then it wasn't a full commitment to serialization. You know, it was sort of a, a half step uh, in, into that world. And, 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 you know, the closest we've probably ever had is that one season arc on, um, on, uh, enterprise where you had an entire season that was dedicated to primarily to one story, but even that then sort of rebooted for the four seasons. So it will be very interesting to have a Star Trek show that has a sort of a, a five year pathway for these characters. And, 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 you know, that may be what they're planning. And I think that would be, you know, a really interesting change for, for Star Trek. It, it certainly would be, yeah. you know? I mean, I, I and I think it, it's necessary. I think that it's something which, you know, given today's climate, it kind of has to be that, and, and I think that that would be really cool. I, I mean, one of the things which I think is really interesting about this, and a lot of people have been talking about this, is the fact that they are, in a sense, kind of like assembling a team which is representative of all of Star Trek on the whole. You know, you've got Alex Kurtzman, who's coming right off of the the JJ verse movies. You know, he he teams up with Brian Fuller, who was a writer during the let's just say next gen era um on on Deep Space 9 and Voyager in particular. And then he brings in Nicholas Meyer, who, you know, was very much a part of TOS or at least the TOS movies, you know, for 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 what that's worth. And it really does feel like they're kind of getting representatives from each piece of of the franchise in order to kind of put this show together and make something that I'm I'm hoping all of the fans will will appreciate, you know? I think that's kind of cool. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see, um, you know, I mean, when you look at sort of, you know, most of Nicholas Meyer's uh, stories tend to have a dimension of mystery to them. I mean, I, obviously he's, you know, we all know he's a Sherlock Holmes fan, but, um, you know, there's the, even, even as movies, you know, there's a, there's an element to some degree in that or, or mystery, you know, Houdini is, you know, mystery in a way, uh, you know, and, and uncertainty, those types of themes. So, uh, you know, Star Trek six is a big Sherlock Holmes mystery in a way. And, um, you know, there's, there, he's very good at that kind of thing. So I'd imagine that some of the stories are going to have that mystery element, which Star Trek has always had, you know, um, where many episodes are, you know, when, when Mary Jo, my wife, watches watches uh, episodes where there are mysteries, she gets excited because it's like, oh, you know, cause and effect on Next Gen. Those are some of her favorites where there's a mystery element to it. And, the, and neither the characters in the show nor the audience know, you know, what's going on. Um, as opposed to sort of a you know alien contact kind of an episode. So, you know, when you look at what each of the writers brings to it, they bring to it a different strength, right? So you look at Alec Kurtzman has, you know, he he did Hercules and did sort of the fun popcorn, you know, the the kaboom and character together. You know, that's what he's kind of known for. Uh, how to bring in character, but yet you're going to have fun action sequences. I think Brian Fuller, it's a lot of character uh, stuff. You know, you look at his, I mean, his, his Deep Space, he did two, I think, two episodes of Deep Space Nine um, that he wrote, and, you know, one of them is the brilliant one with Cisco. you know. Um, and 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 there's also the, the um, you know, the Voyager episodes that were, you know, sometimes, a lot of times, taking the characters out of their normal environment, and putting them into something strange like workforce, you know, where they were, where we were seeing them in a different way and in a different light. And, uh, you know, and then of course, Nicholas Meyer, who brings this, just, you know, this 45, 50 year career of being a storyteller and all these different mediums with them. So, I mean, this is a very, very strong writing team. Um, you know, if, if they cast as good as they've written, where <laughs> we're, you know, uh, in terms of choosing, Yeah, I'm. I'm just going to put this out there because you know, whatever. I could be completely <laughs> wrong about this, but I've been connecting the dots, and I'm fairly confident <laughs> in this. Okay, I think that I think that Jesse Alexander is going to be part of the writing staff. He is a writer who's worked on um, things with both Kurtzman and Fuller in the past, including Heroes Lost, uh, Alias, and um, most recently Hannibal. And there was a random tweet by a random writer-producer in Hollywood to Brian Filler, which was very cryptic. It said something along the lines of, NM plus JA plus AC is a great staff, but it needs some boobies. Uh, And when I said, who is JA and AC, the tweet was immediately deleted. So... Looking at the sort of Venn diagram of writers and who fits into categories and stuff, the only person who's a J.A. who seems to be at all associated with this thing is Jesse Alexander. So, hey, I'm it's complete speculation on my part, but when it happens, you heard it here first. Not not sure about the AC. There's a few there's a few people who could be the AC, but I think it, Jesse Alexander is going to be on staff. And the reason why I bring that up is because... I think it's interesting that that's he's the first non-Trek person who is 
you know, theoretically going to be involved with this thing. It suggests that, you know, it's not going to be just a reunion, you know, like the X-Files was, but there is going to be new blood, which I guess is to be expected no matter what. But I think it'll be kind of cool that to, in addition to seeing, you know, all of these, you know, legacy people who we know and love, we are going to get to see, you know, even if Jesse Alexander is not on the staff, um, people who, who, you know, haven't written for Star Trek before, who are, are going to get their shot at it. I think that that's exciting too, you know, seeing what, what uh, other writers have, have uh, to say about the franchise. It, it would be interesting to see if they do take a, um, you know, it, dep- it depends on how many episodes there are a season, you know, obviously how many writers they're going to need. Are we looking at a, this is a 13, you know, episode, uh, you know, drop. Is it going to be dropped at one time? Is it going to be weekly? You know, how is this going to work? And uh, is it going to be 20 episodes, you know, uh, within a year period of time with some breaks? But whatever the structure is, it might be interesting to see if they're going to do the original series route, which really was has not been done on any of the other Star Trek shows where they go also to the world of science fiction um, and and just pull people from the world of like short stories and novels and you know that sort of thing and bring in this kind of eclectic you know mix of people we get you know Harlan Ellison and those kinds of people for, who worked on the original show because uh, there you know Theodore Sturgeon and so on they weren't afraid to bring in science fiction writers you know Bradbury was asked to write for the for Star Trek you know that kind of thing and um, uh, so he never did, of course, but uh, the because I think he said something along the lines, there's too much confusion between me and Gene Roddenberry already. People think I'm him. And he, you know. But uh, the you know, I think it would be interesting to bring that in, too, um, to have that that element, now, you know, not all the time, but to have a script here and there that has that sort of outside voice to it or you know i don't i don't think they're planning to do that either but they could also follow michael pillar's perspective and open star trek up too because that's how they found you know renee echeverria and ron moore that's how they found brian fuller yeah through that open writing process so i mean it's i don't know if hollywood is just too different now and they don't want to go that route or they just don't you know they don't have 26 episodes a season i highly doubt that we're going to get 26 like you did with next generation but um you know so there, there might not be that need to 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 derive that many scripts out but there's all these possibilities of of who else can be added and because I, I would love for Nicholas Meyer to be really busy on the show, not only writing, but as you said, I mean, why wouldn't he direct some? And he's certainly, and he's directed TV, you know, many, many times before, um, including episodic television. So, um, you know, even on that Crossing Line show, he's he's a producer on there for, for some of the episodes, um, in addition to a writer. So he's, you know, he's certainly willing to work in, the field of television i think in any field where you can tell a story you know i I would you know i'd love to see him do i know they i they talked about i don't know if they've done it yet or maybe it came out the uh, comic book version of his seven percent solution um but i'd love to see him write a comic book you know just purely off of his own imagination uh whether star trek or not you know just just his own universe or do a sherlock holmes story in comic book form i don't think he's worked in comics yet um but he certainly has you know um worked in all those different mediums and i'd love to see him 
direct some of these Star Treks too, because I think the muscles that he uses as a as he uses as a director with the actors obviously is different than than just putting the word because you could see the difference in sort of the direction in Star Trek four of his words versus Star Trek six and two of his words. And um, you know, not that 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 there's a bad difference between them, but there is a difference in the way that lines are carried and I think there's a little more twinkle in the eye for Captain Kirk in the in, in Star Trek two and six than in four, just because of the nature of who the director was, and um, you know that 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 changes things. You know that changes things. For sure, sure. it's going to be exciting. You know, I mean, who who thought? You know, it, I mean, getting new Star Trek is great, but who thought that we'd be getting new Star Trek from Nicholas Meyer? It's it's certainly certainly something to look forward to in the coming year. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us. Um, where where can people find you? You got some talks going on in the near future, right? Yeah, we've been um, really fortunate this year. Lots of chances to share um, a bunch of our new research. We just uh, finished uh, doing research on um, some of the, uh, not necessarily always the most famous or the ones that people think of first, but occasionally a few of them. But uh, on the guest stars of the original show. And we've been able to look at original drafts of scripts and story treatments. And um, so incredibly fortunate to have been able to send some questions to DC Fontana and get her take on things. Um, and so we're going to be, we have a talk we're going to be doing at things like the creation convention um, where we're going to be talking about uh, some, some, you know, how did Sarek start? Uh, what was the original idea for that? The, the Romulan commander, the female Romulan commander, um, and uh, what the original intention was, which is fascinating, by the way. The original script by DC Fontana is tremendously different in every way, shape, and form, including the the inclusion of Sarek. I'll give you that. Was Sarek was in that script initially for the Enterprise incident? Wow. Um, oh. And so. Oh. Yeah, lots of, I mean, totally different. I mean, everything was different. The whole thing was different. And so we're going to be able to share that and talk about Harry Mudd and where he came from. And we've got some really, really great pictures and rare pictures to show uh, with that talk. And uh, we just got a lot of great, you know, 50th anniversary talks coming up. We've got stuff about collectibles and our newspaper talk about the history of Star Trek through newspapers. And so we're, we really have, we have several talks a month going on. You know, they're always free at the libraries for people and free in the community and, and or they're at the creation conventions. And uh, we're really happy. We get to go to Vulcan. We got invited to go to Vulcan, Alberta, Canada, believe it or not, <laughs> oh, uh, and uh, give some of our talks there. So that's going to be, we can say we've gone to Vulcan and people aren't going to look at me strange now. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, they'll still look at me strange, but uh, uh, so that's really, really fun. It's, it's such a great treat to share uh, the information. It's really a privilege to share the information, to get access to it, and to share it. And uh, you know, that's what it's all about. We want to, you know, get the get get you know as much making of information about Star Trek out there that's right, um, or as right as we can think it is. Um, and uh, and share it with people. And we've got a real fun one we just started looking at. We have all these letters between fans and um, Gene Roddenberry. Oh, and wow. uh, oh. we think it'll be very interesting to take a look at how he reacted to the fans back in the 1960s and 70s. So, And then also looking at his writings of his commentaries on the scripts. What did he think about Star Trek II and so on? And 
we're, we're, we're anxious to share that. So, um, yeah, if anybody's ever interested, they can just, um, you know, uh, if they you can hit us up on Twitter at uh, M, MJ Tenuto, it's M-J-T-E-N-U-T-O uh, on Twitter. And, uh, you know, we can always send a, a list of talks. They're almost always local, you know, in Illinois, at local libraries and stuff. But occasionally we're, we're going to other places and, uh, you know, very excited to, to, to be with other fans. I mean, like Saturday when we did the Leonard Nimoy talk, it was, it was, I was very emotional. Um, we were really a crowd of, you know, 60 people just, uh, celebrating him and laughing and, 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 you know, occasionally crying and it was great. And, uh, and it was a chance to even share a little bit about, you know, the, the COPD documentary film that his daughter mm. is doing and, and, uh, you know, to talk about his legacy. So, I mean, I, I, you know, for, for us, it's, uh, it's, it's really wonderful. And, and now with the new show coming out, um, and having such people in it that we admire so much like Brian Fuller and, and of course, Nicholas Meyer, who just, you know, he's to, to me, he's just a really talented, he's not only a talented man. He's really sort of just a nice man who, who cares deeply about art and people and telling good stories. And I think that that will, that will, that will be a big boost to the new TV show. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about Star Trek Beyond. You know, also I'm very hopeful because Simon Pegg is, you know, one of the co-writers. And um, I mean, this is just the best year in the world. I mean, I got Star Wars, I got Star Trek. <laughs> what else do you want? <laughs> Nothing. What else Nothing can you ask for? <laughs> Not much. The only thing that would be better would be Batman and Superman in the same movie if yeah, that ever happened. Right. I know. Oh, that's just crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. When would that ever happen? <laughs> Come on. That's never going to happen. That's wow. like Nicholas Meyer writing Star Trek. It's not going to happen. Again. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much for joining us, John. It was great, and uh, it was yeah. great to get your perspective. And uh, yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's been fun talking about Better Luck Tomorrow and Nicholas Meyer today, but that's not all we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. The Wadi, a fun-loving race from the Gamma Quadrant, arrive at DS9 eager to play a game with Cisco and the crew, one that appears to be a matter of life and death. All right, so are we moving along, Matthew? Oh, we're moving along. <laughs> the Ready Room. He's carrying in the lamb chop sock puppet <laughs> saying... She stayed at her post. <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> to the journey! My last one, I think I might get a little bit of grief from you. Uh, workforce, part one. Oh my god. Oh. I, I know. Uh, hey, I did not make fun of Fairhaven. That's because Fairhaven's good and Workforce is boring. Oh, bite me. Commentary, Trek stars. You know, you, you come up with something stupid because of some joke that someone said and someone else said, and then all of a sudden you're doing a uh, tournament of movies which J.J. Abrams produced <laughs> to determine which one is the crappiest. The 602 Club. We start getting hints of Thor. We start getting hints of Cap. We start getting hints of the entire Avengers crew, and we get Black Widow. So, I mean, Iron Man 2, considering... How maybe that's not my favorite movie of the MCU really does set up a lot of what is to come. Literary Treks. 
you know, visually to me, this is one of my favorite eras of Star Trek. You know, those monster maroon coats they're wearing and they're just absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, I've a lot of people talked about wanting to get a Captain Sulu Star Trek series. And one of the big reasons for me that that would be so great is to see this era played out visually on a regular basis. Women at Warp. Her, her voice as a computer voice has become so iconic that when Google started developing what is now known as Google Now, that, that personal assistant you can speak to, um, they had initially codenamed it Google Majel. That's so cool. Isn't that awesome? Meta Trex. And I kind of had the jingle in my head, you can be a winner at the game yes. of life. And I was trying to think of the Star Trek version of that. You know, you, you, you can be a winner of the poker game of life on the Enterprise. Uh, <laughs> on the it Inter didn't really roll off the tongue. So It was great until you added on the Enterprise. Melodic Treks. The reason why I think Brian Wrightsell would be a more plausible choice is because he has worked with Fuller in the past. They worked together on Hannibal. He scored that series, all 39 episodes. The neat thing about Brian Wrightsell's music is it's more of a sound design than it is a score. Saturday Morning Trek. One of the characters is sizably larger than the than the other. So he's just I don't, closer to the camera, Aaron, obviously. But he's actually behind the other person. <laughs> he's a giant. <laughs> Wait, then he doesn't need a laser cutter. You can just lift the hatch up with it. <laughs> Go down and get it. Okay. Continuing mission. Yeah, and of course, another great thing is when it's it's all finished and you look at it and go, yeah, we made that together. Yeah, that's that's one of the greatest moments. And people respond to it and say, oh, that's that's pretty well made. The effects are great. The actors are are great, uh, even though they're Dutch trying to speak English, right? <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find us on iTunes. Also, uh, leave us a review. Uh, we'll read it on the air. Um, it'll be fun. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher. Tune in, SoundCloud, the Windows Phone, or you can stream and download the MP3 from our website or grab the RSS link as well. One way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to uh, purchase some stuff from our store. If you go to trek.fm, there's a, a link to the promenade, which will uh, take you to our Redbubble store where you can find all sorts of cool designs, uh, most of them by Aaron Harvey. And, uh, yeah, they're really cool. You can get T-shirts, sweatshirts, bumper stickers, whatever you want. Another way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. We do have a review from all the way up in Canada from Brandon, who says, uh, five stars, 
very generous. The title, The Citizen Kane of Star Trek Celebrities Work Out of Star Trek. Podcast, I'm assuming. I don't know. I can't see the whole thing. It says, Mike and John are an absolute joy to listen to. These fine gentlemen really know their film stuff and clearly have a passion for what they do. They poke fun at each other and what they are watching in a friendly way that is fun to listen to. Keep up the great work. P.S. The funny voice that you are to read this in is Helium. Uh, See, I would have read it in the Helium voice, but I didn't see that until the end of the message. So put, put your voice requests up front. I mean, I could go back and read the whole thing now in the Helium voice, but... Yeah, we'll save that for next week. Next week, we'll do it in the helium voice. But thank you, Brandon. We really appreciate it. And we would appreciate it if other people left reviews for us on iTunes, um, because that really helps us out. If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. You can find the network on Twitter at trek.fm. You can find the network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Facebook is also where you'll find the Babel Conference, which is our listener forum. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook. Or go to our website at trek.fm and click on the discussion tab on the menu bar. Uh, You can also find this show on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Or you can find John on Twitter at KesselJunkie or me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. As a Trek.fm listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trek.fm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trek.fm. And we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the Network. Well... That takes care of our first part in our series on Justin Lin, and we will be back next week to discuss the second film in our series on Justin Lin, Annapolis. <laughs>